and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast, where you can learn powerful techniques to change the way you feel. I am your host, Rhonda Borowski, and joining me here in the Murrieta studio is Dr. David Burns. Dr. David Burns is a pioneer in the development of cognitive behavioral therapy and the creator of the new teen therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 30 languages. David is currently an emeritus adjunct professor of clinical psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine. Hello, Rhonda. Hello, David. Hello, Mark. Hello, David and Rhonda. Hello, Dave. Hello, David, Rhonda, and Mark. Hello, Dave. Hello, Mark. Yes. Hello to everyone. Today we have um, two special guests. Two special guests. Well, Dave Freibush is no longer a special guest. He's a... I'm an unspecial guest. He, you're, you're no longer a guest. You are a participant, oh, a frequent participant. Okay. Um, but we do have a very, very special guest, um, Dr. Mark Noble. Shall I introduce you, Mark? If you would like, sure. Um, Dr. Mark Noble besides being one of the most compassionate and loving human beings that I've known in a long time. More even than me? No, not, not as much as you. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he is a professor of genetics and neuroscience at the University of Rochester Medical Center. And he's considered to be one of the founders of the modern, modern stem cell biology. His laboratory has made important contributions on the development of the central nervous system, the adverse effects of cancer treatments on the brain, the development of safer and more effective treatments for cancer, as well as peripheral nerve and spinal cord injuries, and much, much more. And he, as I understand it, became familiar with David um, when he had done some research and writing about the toxic effects of antidepressants. And just about when he started thinking about that, you were telling us, Mark, that you read the Stanford Magazine article about David Burns and the Team CBT, which, as everyone knows, because we've talked about it before, that article that came out in Stanford Magazine about David was probably one of the most well-read articles in the history of the Stanford Magazine. And Repeat well that without the word probably. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've said it before, we're excited really to have you here, Mark, because you have such important information to pass on to our listeners and can't wait to have you describe it well thank you thank you for having me back i mean this is this is a an upgrade of podcast number 100 so in podcast when i first became start aware of david's work i wrote to him because i was in california several times a year for grant reviews and he invited me to join the Sunday hikes and the Tuesday groups and at the Tuesday group. And the dim sum is following. And the dim sum as well. And at the Tuesday group, uh, we showed a, a video of one of the remarkable treatments of a woman who had had terrible depression for, for years because of a traumatic event with her daughter. And I was absolutely flummoxed that there was nothing in neuroscience that enabled me to understand what had just happened. How could you have someone who had been refractory for a decade to all treatments for depression have their depression disappear in a two-hour conversation? So I wanted to understand the neuroscience of this. And in podcast number 100, we presented the, the, the first attempt at this. Well, David and I have been working together on, on this a lot. David very kindly and generously 
he asked me if I would consider writing a, a chapter to include in his new book, which has led to a, a lot of refinement in thinking and um, I hope in, in explanation and presentation. And I think that the key message is that my view these days is that if you took everything that we know about nervous system function and you wanted to design an optimal therapy for treating depression and anxiety, you would end up with something that looks a lot like Team CBT. And we can talk about the reasons for thinking that. But that has tremendous implications for understanding maybe better ways to teach Team CBT, to change other types of psychotherapy, and maybe a lot of ramifications for the way we deal with kids in school and the way we do a lot of things in our daily lives. Well, that sounds huge. It's, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a fascinating area. And you, you're very careful in science that, that you don't want to become, it's very easy to fall in love with your, thought, your stories. So you're always trying to find ways to test whether you're wrong. And happily, there's been tremendous amounts of relevant research done that I can go to say, okay, here I have an idea. If this idea is right, then I would think that this experiment should behave in this way. So this experiment should have this outcome. Go to the literature, and often people have done the experiment, and that's the outcome. So I, I, I think that, that working together, we, we've come up with a, a rather different view of how to think about psychotherapy, we, we have to build a neuroscience of psychotherapy. We have to build a neuroscience of Team CBT, but I think there's another part to that, which is that the success of Team CBT is so enormous that it can teach us an enormous amount about brain function. I, I, so those are the reasons for becoming interested. And I think that the key point is that the only way that Team CBT can work so effectively, the only way, is because it's well integrated with brain function. Okay, I'm waiting for David to say something, but can you explain that more? Deep? Well, I can. Uh, I'm not motivated to talk for the first time because what you're saying is so so awesome, but I'll just ask a quick a quick question and let you, let you carry on. One of the barriers I've had in... Uh, training people, particularly psychiatric residents at Stanford, and I would imagine it would be the true of, psych of psychiatric residents everywhere, is that they're taught, and I was taught, that depression is like this mountain that builds up over years or decades, and that changing that is going to take years or decades, a very slow process. And this is really kind of a religion, this belief, and uh, traditional psychotherapy that I was trained in when I was a resident, and, and it's much the same today, there's been changes, but a lot is still the same, is that you're just going to talk to your patient over a course of months, years, or decades, or even more than 10 years before you expect to see changes. The whole uh, premise of uh, team CBT is the change generally doesn't happen, more, take more than, say, 30 seconds, maybe a minute at the most, that it happens in a whoosh all, all of a sudden. Now, it may take an hour and 15 minutes, if you have a two-hour session, to get up to that whoosh moment, but that it happens very rapidly and that it can happen within a single therapy session. And then 
when I've, I've told this to psychology fellows at Stanford, postdoctoral psychology fellows from National Institute of Mental Health, they've, they've become so outraged they've refused to continue to come to my teaching. And many of the Stanford residents have also dis, dismissed this as, 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 as quackery, uh, that, that it's, this is not, not, not possible. It's like the wrong religion, so to speak. It's like a, you're a faith healer or a quack. We're the, we're the real real psychiatrists, and maybe you can address that uh, well, what, well, I think that, that there are two, in general, two ways in which we can conduct research on a, a let's say, a medical problem, but I think in general this is true. You can have an idea about how things work and then construct experiments to test that idea. So this is the way that, for example, the new immunotherapies for cancer have been developed. There's an idea that we can use, we can harness the immune system to attack cancer cells. And people have done years and years of experiments to, to get to that point. Another way you can do it, which is equally valid, is if you find something that works, you try to understand how it works. And in fact, even with the case of immunotherapy, there's an old, old experiment on something called Coley's toxin, where the, the guy by the name of Coley had to, was working on cancer in rabbits, and he injected them. He noticed that when they got sick, sometimes the cancers went away. He discovered that if he injected them with BCG, that uh, vaccine, the cancer sometimes went away. So he had an observation, something worked, and all of the years of immunotherapy have basically been trying to figure out how Coley's toxin works and the discoveries that come on from that. So here's a case where the empirical work of treating thousands of patients and paying attention to what works and what doesn't work and doing everything in a very scientific way has led to a treatment. So what I would say to people who want to dismiss this is that you don't get to do that as a scientist. You don't get to say, this doesn't fit with my story Therefore, Burns is a charlatan. Therefore, this is all made up. That's not being a scientist. That's being um, an ideologist. If you're a scientist, you look at it and say, okay, here are really extraordinary claims. Is there extraordinary evidence? Well, you can listen to sessions in the podcasts and hear these treatments occurring in real time. You can read about them in the many books that David has written and a new book that will be coming out. And there is a point at which the evidence showing that this works is so great that you have to stop and say, wait a minute. The question now is, how does this work? Because the evidence is there that it does work. And if it doesn't fit with your preconceptions, what you need to give up is your preconceptions. That's cool. Tell us about how the brain works. I know you you have this new somewhat simplified uh, system SNF, and in editing your, your wonderful chapter, uh, it, it, it suddenly became clear to me just the wisdom of what you were saying and the whole thing of, you know, you hear a sound or smell a smell and you think there's a tiger and then you go and look and 
there is no tiger even, you know, 50,000 years ago. Emotional changes happen very, very fast. The moment the brain sees that the thinking is wrong, you know, you see it, think you're hearing a tiger, the amygdala gets fired up, you're thinking you're in danger. These things are evolutionarily programmed to work very fast because you can't sit and reason, is there a tiger? You got to move fast. If, if there isn't, then you go and look and you see there isn't, you suddenly change. Your anxiety goes from 100 to zero, just like this. And you've been talking about, uh, uh, you know, all, all the different ways the brain functions, uh, how these things have developed evolutionarily, and, and how team, it's, it's amazing. It's just like if we were to create a therapy to figure out, based on how brain functions, it, it would be team. T tell us about SNAF and, and how that, just a, the fourth grade version this is the one I'm always interested in, but and how that integrates with, uh, you know, TEAM and stuff like that. Okay, well, let's 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 go even a step before that. Sure. And say, and say, what does the brain do? Like like any other part of the body, the brain has one job, and it's to help keep us alive. It's a pretty big job. It's a pretty big job, and it has many chores that it does. It regulates body functions, but critically. It takes information from inside the body and information from outside the body and it interprets it. That interpretation becomes stored in memories. It becomes available to make predictions. Once it's in memories, now the brain can make predictions about what will happen in one circumstance or another. But there's also an evolutionary advantage if we are motivated to have the right reactions to our interpretations. And we call those motivations emotions. And emotions are very simple. They are primarily, are we going to move towards something or away from something? Look at a bacterial cell that you put near a toxin or a food source. It will move towards the food source. It will move away from the toxin. So this is a very, very old biology that over evolution has become more and more refined, but still with a basic concept, that this is a, there's a need to react to interpretations and emotions are what we, with our language of the past 50,000 years, we did use that language to describe these emotions, but all the parts of the brain involved in generating these emotions, they're there in fish and they're there in turtles and so, this is old stuff. Now, emotions are generated unconsciously and they're generated quickly. So when I walk in this room, I don't say, oh, there's Rhonda and David and Dave. Therefore, I think I'll be happy. I see you all and I'm happy, right? It's, and we all know that. We all know that our emotional reactions are essentially in immediate. So we have to remember, we have to be able to learn, we have to be able to take in new information, and our interpretations have to be able to change if the new information changes. Well, if the emotions are the motivations to respond to our interpretations, which is what CBT is based on and what the Stoic philosopher said 2,000 years ago and what the Buddha said 2,500 years ago, and what his teachers started saying 500 years before him, 
Oh, is that right? It goes yeah. back 3,000 years. Yeah. Yeah, I figured he was probably a plagiarist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the Buddha had a lot to say about nerve cells in the brain. Yeah. But um, the, the, if the interpretations change, the emotions change. That is simply how the brain works. That is the way our daily lives work. We've all had that experience. We take it for granted, but we've all had that experience. So what I would say about effective psychotherapy is that it's enabling that switch to happen. And what is so extraordinary about Team CBT is that it enables it to happen very, very effectively based on a very specific structure of the sessions that has been developed through these many years of experimentation of finding out what works. And when you look at the, the function of Team CBT the, of, of, uh, in, in that way, you get a very different picture, right? Because now you're thinking about this from the point of view of how brains work. So we have what emotions do. How do we think? That's an important part. We're trying to change how we think, so it's important to understand how we think. And our thoughts are organized into stories. We're storytelling species. There, and we, we call those stories frames. Now, some stories are really boring. Two plus two equals four. It's still a story. I had two things and two things and I get four. It's kind of a boring story, not a lot of character development. But even at that level, we're talking about stories. According to people like George Lakoff at Berkeley, we're also all these sorts of built on metaphors, metaphorical understandings of the world. And, and that's in a very important part of Team CBT, I think, that, that we're going to get to. So that's how we think. Then those frames are not just the stories in our brain, but they're also the stories that the world presents to us. So, for example, if you have a... a, 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 a company like Facebook, it doesn't say to you, give us all of your personal information so we can target advertisements to you. It says, have networks with friends, form relationships with people you didn't know yet, communicate better with your family. It frames the story in a certain way. And by framing it in that way, the story becomes very attractive. If the frame was just give us your information. We're going to try and sell you a lot of stuff. Nobody would enter any information. So those frames are very important. And then the, th the third critical topic is what is the mechanical basis of our thinking? And that's nerve cells. That's what, oh, nerve, nerve yeah. cells. All, all of our thoughts are networks of nerve cells interacting with each other. And those networks of nerve cells change. And this has been a topic of study for a long time. And there are two, principle, two principles that we think of. One is called what, what, what fires together, wires together. That's how you learn something new. Nerve cells that are brought to fire together become wired together. And once they're wired together, you have the converse, that what is wired together fires together. So now they're talking to each other. You've built this network, and now it works. And the more you practice it, the better it works. And if you look at even something like how a baby learns to put blocks in the right shape holes, the brain is causing the arm to move. The visual system is looking at the shape of the holes as a tactile, tactile sensation of did it go in or did it not? And all these networks are getting put together. And eventually the baby learns 
round shape, round hole, triangle shape, triangle hole. And then these ideas generalize. These networks become used over and over again. So you can introduce a new shape and the baby will figure that out immediately because it's learned. Look at the visual shape. Look at the visual shape of the hole. The same network of nerve cells becomes used in different circumstances. That's that we'll discuss. That is the basis, I think, of fractal micro fractal psychotherapy, because there's really no other way that it can work so far as I can figure out. So what are we trying to do? We're trying to modify neurons. We're trying to modify neurons very selectively. And we, we call this micro neurosurgery to give it a name that's 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 fun and, and easy to remember. Okay, so now we're looking at therapy in a very different way. But are there are there various neurotransmitters involved in this? What networks, not neurotransmitters. No, but what a wonderful question yeah. that is. Oh, what, sure. what a wonderful question. Oh, thank that you so is. much. The, the, so <laughs> Yeah, 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 I would have asked that question if you hadn't. <laughs> Brilliant question. <laughs> Not that I'm competing with David Burns. So, 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 so this is this is, then this is going to be. This may be very disturbing for some of your listeners. So, the brain has, you know, we don't know exactly how many neurons, but the estimate is a uh, hundred billion, and each of these nerve cells can talk to. A hundred or a thousand or other nerve cells. Uh, I've some, heard tw uh, twenty-five million. Some some people can go up to ten thousand, but now you're starting to talk about ten trillion synaptic connections in the brain. Okay. And can you explain to certain reader, listeners what's a synaptic connection? Oh, sorry. So when nerve cells talk to each other by releasing chemicals that we call neurotransmitters. So a nerve cell is activated. And one of the consequences of that is that it releases a packet of neurotransmitter, which causes the next nerve cell in line to become activated. Those neurotransmitters are where things like antidepressants work. But here's the problem. We may have 100 trillion interactions between neurons, but so far as we know, there's only about 100 neurotransmitters. So now you look at something like antidepressants, where you're going to disrupt serotonin metabolism widely throughout all the nerve cells with the serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs, and you're trying to deal with some very specific circuits is the core principle of all of CBT. So it's like saying, I want to turn off a light in this room. And CBT, Team CBT even better, is saying, okay, let's reach into the room, turn the switch. Antidepressants are like saying, okay, I want to turn off the light in this room, and therefore I'm going to disrupt the power supply to the entire city. It's not a very sensible way of doing things. It doesn't make sense scientifically, and the data on antidepressant effects is dreadful that most of them have no greater benefit than placebo. There are no studies that I've been able to find on whether anybody who takes them actually gets happier, as opposed to simply turning down the volume of the emotions. And, and you know, you know that, you all know that from treating lots of patients, a terrible side effect of antidepressants is general emotional flattening. So very, very different way 
of thinking about it. And part of the reason for that is that there are a limited number of neurotransmitters. They're affecting lots and lots of nerve cell circuits. So should we go on to how we do this? How does this work? Or, or Yes, absolutely. Sorry for the, that was the phone. I just disconnected. I'm just sorry for the inter interruption. Is that what you want to do, David? What? Talk about how this works? A a absolutely. Can I just make a totally irrelevant, irreverent comment? Yes, you may. It, it, it's uh, totally unconnected. Oh, am I not on? Just, just yeah, I'm on. Oh, it's red, though, rather than green. There you go. Okay, here, here we go. Yes, I think it's fantastic. I just had an, uh, a bizarre thought, and it, it'll, it'll illustrate nothing other than my impending dementia. But while I was listening to your magnificent summary so far, we'll continue with it in just a moment. I just had the thought we could start a new dating service called the Synaptic Connection. <laughs> <laughs> Trademarked immediately. Yeah, yeah, you'll be the CEO. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, let's get back. This and, is fantastic and, what, what you're saying. Yeah. And considering the, the social afflictions that trouble many scientists, I think it would be a widely used uh, dating service in the scientific Absolutely. community. Absolutely. So, uh, see, it's so interesting about selectively ch changing neurons in the brain. And, and one thing, just to give my own two cents worth here, something you already thought of and turned me on to, is that when we're doing what we call fractal psychotherapy, we focus on one specific moment of the patient's life, not this non-specific endless talk I was trained to do as a psychiatric resident and say, what's one brief moment when you were upset that, that you would like my help? And then we ask the patient to fill out, if it's depression or anxiety, a daily mood log. What were your feelings at that one five-second moment? And, and what were you telling yourself? And this, and so the person might be thinking as, as our last guest, who was a, a, a tremendously successful back surgeon, but he would tell himself, I'm not good enough. I, I shouldn't have, have, have screwed up. A lot of spe specific messages. And those are the networks that, that are causing the pain. And so when you, you fill out the negative thought column and, and circular, circle your negative emotions, like you're 90% depressed and 80% ashamed and 100% anxious and 70% angry, and then you write down the thoughts that are triggering those emotions, you're activating, say, eight or ten specific networks that are the total cause of, of, of your depression out of these hundreds of billions of, of networks and network connections, if, if I understand you So correctly. why would you treat that with something that affects serotonin metabolism throughout <laughs> yeah, the brain? Yeah, I mean, exactly. But that's, kind of what, sorry, but that's kind of what you were talking about, Mark. So you have all these negative thoughts, and are those wiring together and yeah. continuing to yeah. fire together. Yeah. So let's let's so let's look at a team CBT session. Actually okay. let's let's even look before a team CBT session. Yeah, the conventional therapy. Right. Let's 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 Should let's we compare. start with the patient who's suffering? Sure. So a patient who's suffering, he is going to make a choice and sees three choices available. They can choose a therapy that may take years doesn't have any side effects, may not do any good, may do some good, nobody really knows. That's one therapeutic choice. Another therapeutic choice is you can take these pills. May do some good, may not do some good, may have very severe side effects, may be very hard to quit taking. 
Or there's this third ther therapy, Team CBT, that works quickly. There's no medications, there's no side effects. So which is the patient going to choose? There's a frame here of Team CBT that is extraordinarily powerful. We know that the way in which a story is presented, the way in which we perceive something emotionally affects the way we respond to it. Go into a classroom and tell the kids, this is a really hard test. Most of you are not going to do well, or this is a really easy test. I think you're all going to do great. Give them the same test and you get different outcomes. So someone even coming into Team CBT has different expectations. That is a good thing. You can say, oh yeah, well, you know, that maybe that's part of the treatment. Well, sure, that should be part of the treatment. Anything that can be, one of the things I love about Team CBT is this idea of tools, not schools. If it works, use it. Yeah. That's so scientific, right? If it works, use it. Okay, so now you're going to do empathy. So what is empathy? And, and Rhonda, this is something you and I have had a great conversation on. That, that the, the, I've, I've read a lot of books and articles now on empathy, and one of the things that really strikes me about them is the way that people write about empathy from the point of view of the giver, not the receiver. But all that matters in therapy is the receiver. So what does it mean to experience empathy? What, what do you, you gave me a great answer to that when I asked I? you that. I think it's the, to just really feel um, loved and understood and accepted. To be in a place where you're not going to be attacked, right. where you are accepted for who you are. It, empathy addresses the need to be liked and accepted, but it does two things more than that. It decreases stress. Now, we want it for, from point of view of brain function, you really want to do that because when you're stressed, your attention narrows because back in the day when we were just another flavor on the predator's meal chart, stress was about where you're going to live or die, right? Stress wasn't about, oh my God, I don't have a date for the prom or I missed the last episode of Downton Abbey or whatever television show. Stress was about survival. So your attention narrows to what you need to do to survive. And it's very hard to take in other information for good evolutionary reasons. Okay, so you decrease stress and decreasing stress, you now become more open to things, but something else happens. And I think that this is so critical. The patient becomes able to talk about their deepest problems. Things that they have kept secret from everybody, things they may not even know themselves, that until you start having this conversation. The reason that's important is that, so far as we know, you cannot modify a network of nerve cells unless it's activated. And the only way we know if a nerve cell network is activated in humans is to bring it to conscious awareness and talk about it. So it is the demonstration we've activated that network. Once we've done that, that network is now on the table and we've identified networks that we want to modify. And that's how you can now focus the therapy. And, and, and sometimes in therapy, um, if you have that trust, if you, if you have that, that warmth, the patient will choose to disclose information that he or she has never b before disclosed 
uh, and, and activate that. And I won't bring in personal examples, but we've we could, but we've also talked about that that fellow from Nazi Germany who had suffered for 70 years and then he finally disclosed to me why he thought he was worthless because he had claustrophobia and the fear of the dark and he'd hidden, hidden it for 60 years from every person because he was he was so ashamed and once we activated those networks and brought it to conscious awareness then it was a simple matter to to find tools that right. would, would blow right. that out of the water. Right, because now you're focused on doing that. Yeah. Okay, so now what do we do? How do we modify networks? Well, we we do it all the time whenever we learn anything. There's nothing, you know, I'm not proposing anything deeply radical here. And, and we even have this amazing tool that we've developed over the past 50,000 years to modify networks in the human brain called language. So... That's a good point. The purpose of language is to modify brain networks. Language right. is a kind of a neurosurgical technique. Right. That's that's how we use it, right? That's how we interact with each other. So that's what we're doing. Talk therapy, language, right? So now, what's going to happen next? For, actually, I want to say something else about empathy, because I know a lot of your listeners are ther therapists or therapists in training. Remember that in doing this, this principle of not being attacked, I, I think it's really of central importance. That means it's very important to have very good control of pitch, tone, and body language. And if you listen to all the examples of live therapy, um, David with, with you, with you and Jill, with the two of you, one of the things that's very clear is the emotional tone of the language is always extremely kind and caring. Well, pre-verbally, pre-language, those are the kinds of things that we were attentive to. That was the information on whether we were about to get attacked from someone else in the, in the tribe who might have a higher dominance ranking, for example. So you want to be attentive to that when you're doing therapy. It's part of getting the stress down, getting the networks you need to work on active. But that's not enough. Uh, David, as you have said many, many times, empathy is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And I'm going to, I want to say something, I'd like to say something else that I think may be disturbing for some of your listeners, which is I have this idea now of why psychotherapy doesn't work and goes on for years and years, which is I think a little bit different. That it's not, when I first started learning about Team CBT, I, I thought that the problem with psychotherapy was that it just didn't have good techniques. I'm now worried about something very different. If you activate a network and don't modify it, it just becomes stronger. Mm -hmm. So if in psychotherapy you keep talking about the same problem over and over and over and over, all you do is you make it stronger. Well, that's what you were talking about, though. The, the networks are firing together and they're, yeah. they're getting stronger and stronger. They're getting stronger and stronger. So conventional therapy that I was trained in actually causes people to become worse because yeah. they get better and better and better at, at, at complaining and talking about negatives and the therapist says, tell me more and reinforces that. And so there's never any change process. That was why I got unhappy with psychotherapy during, during my residency, which was primarily psychoanalytic listening, listening kind of stuff. And I, and I could see it never went anywhere. And, and the patients would burst into tears uh, and, and say, you're not helping me. And 
my life is terrible. And then I go back and tell my supervisors what happened. They say, what a wonderful session that was because they had this theory that if you get the negative feelings out, you'll, you'll, you'll be cured or something. But it never happened. They just continued to vent and cry and, 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 and be angry. But it sounds like there's brain chemistry that's you re, is describing how those negative thoughts and feelings in a, are reinforcing each other. They're reinforcing right. each other. But yeah. it's not brain chemistry, right? It's brain, it's circuitry. brain electricity. Brain circuitry. Okay. Brain circuitry. Brain circuitry. Brain circuitry. Yeah, okay. yeah, right? I apologize. The, the interactions between very specific groups of neurons. So now how are you going to modify them? And this is where you get to the daily mood log and fractal psychotherapy. Now, fractal psychotherapy, you, you've done a podcast on, specifically on that, and it is it's truly a brilliant discovery. But the reason it's a brilliant discovery is because, I think, because of the ability to use the daily mood log to apply it effectively. And the daily mood log... I, I, you know, I'm, I'm here with you, you know, I, I admire this work so much, but I, I truly objectively think that the Daily Mood Log is an astonishing document for treating a emotional problem. And I'll explain why I say that. So the first thing is you're going to take a moment in time. Just think of what that means in terms of the frame of a treatment, right? As you were saying before, yeah. a patient comes in with this mountain on their back. Overwhelmed. Yeah, overwhelmed, never-ending misery. You say, no, no, we're just going to work on one moment of time. Well, that's a really different type of problem to try and talk about because it's just one moment in time. So you're changing the frame. You're doing something else. You're breaking it down into something that you can break down even further because now you can start dissecting that moment in time. So you've taken the mountain, you've made it smaller, and then as you go through the daily mood log and circle specific emotions and write down specific negative thoughts, you're making it smaller and smaller and smaller. This immense challenge is the stress of that is being changed. There's other aspects of the daily mood log that reduce stress. Having that list of emotions. Yeah. Right? You know, you've, you've talked about this, that there's many psychiatrists and psychologists believe in a condition called alexithymia, yeah. where it's difficult to describe emotions. You say you've never had a patient with that problem. Yeah. But alexithymia, for our listeners, is this construct that most psychiatrists, psychologists believe in that 15% of patients can't tell you what their feelings are. They don't know how their feelings called alexithymia. I've never once had a patient who didn't know every feeling they had right down to the decimal point. But if you give them the daily mood log, they don't have to think of the words. Exactly. So the stress is taken out of it. You take take a moment in time. You can touch the, touch the feelings that you had. Oh, you felt sad and down. How strong was that? Oh, you felt anxious and panicky. How strong was that? Zero to 100. And it makes right. it easy to know what your feelings right. are at any specific at, moment in time. Right. And, and it's it's fantastic, I think, in, in that regard. So now you have that information. Okay, you have brought the networks up that you want to modify. What are you going to do now? So what 
and and, and I'm, I'm talking about this as though there were a strict order, but I've observed enough sessions to know that there's a lot of room for improvisation. Yeah. But let's say that the next step is addressing, assessing, dealing with resistance. And the way that that is done is by identifying the positive thoughts that are associated with the negative feelings and thoughts. Like the woman who'd been uh, raped and, and beaten by her husband for 30 years and she got out of the marriage. She, I saw her 12 years after that. And so for 42 years of failed therapy and, and she's on all of these still, these intense emotions, depression 100 and shame 100 and panic 100 and rage 100 and lonely. And then she's telling herself, I must be defective. That, that's why my husband beat me because he could see I was, I was defective. I should have gotten out of the, the marriage earlier. If anyone knew what had happened to me, they would judge me. They, they would look mm -hmm. down on me, Think, things like that. I'm, 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 it's, I'm not safe. I can't trust men. Exactly, exactly. So in doing this, you, what you're also doing is activating curiosity. What an extraordinary thing to say to someone. Yeah, what do these negative right. thoughts and feelings show you about that's positive and awesome? Before right. we show you how to get rid of them, and, maybe we better look at the other side of the coin. Right, and even before that, you can treat me by talking about one moment in time. Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. Or you can treat me in a single two-hour session. How does that work? There is no greater motivation for learning than curiosity. So the whole structure of Team CBT... Yeah really harnesses curiosity. And, and expectations. Something and expectations. amazing is going to happen today. Rather than you just come in and talk like you've been doing for years and years, something is going to happen today to transform your life. So, so, so now what have you done? You've put in some positive emotions on the table. And you ask the person, for each one of them, is that true? You've taken all these negative thoughts but let's do the positive reframing first, just to show our, our, our listeners what, what, what is awesome about her, her statement, I, I must be defective. What does that show about her that's positive and awesome? For someone who's depressed? For, yeah, this for, woman for this with 30 years woman. of rapes and beating, she's saying, I must be defective, and she's horribly depressed. What are some beautiful things about that? See, if she presses the magic button, all these negative thoughts and feelings will disappear. That's what she wanted to do. She wanted us all to disappear. And we say, but wait a minute. Before we make them disappear, let's look at what's beautiful about these negative thoughts and feelings. Right. What, what's great about her depression? Right. I mean, oh. she's honest. She's honest. She's mm -hmm. self-critical. She has insight. Mm -hmm. She shows she's a survivor. It, show, it, it shows her passion for what she's lost. It mm -hmm. shows her passion for life. And it's also appropriate. Isn't it's it real, appropriate it's to be hundred percent realistic? Sad and, and depre depressed. Yeah. And when she says I'm defective, what what are some great things about that? She's humble. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. And to see this woman, I have a video of it. She's she has high standards. Yeah, and and have your I asked her, have your high standards motivated you? Well, she said, well, after I left my husband, I, I got a PhD in clinical psychology, and I have the biggest practice in a certain major city of the United States so it also treating shows abused that, women. Yeah, so she can really relate to other people who have experienced similar things. She has a great deal of compassion. Compassion. And then what's great about her anxiety? She says, I can't trust men. Well, she has a, a strong protective factor. 
Right, it keeps her safe. It keeps her safe. Well, does she need and to be kept safe? Well, After all, her sadistic, violent husband still lives two miles away. Yes, she does. <laughs> and she just met a new guy, yeah. and maybe she wants maybe to, she be needs to be vigilant. cautious yeah, and vigilant, yeah, make sure it. that she doesn't get into a similar so, relationship. So when we do that positive reframing, suddenly, uh, as, to use your language, mm -hmm. she become her brain becomes peaceful again. She starts. She's not feeling so ashamed. Well, this, these are beautiful things about me. These aren't defects. Right. The right. story has changed. Yeah, the yeah, frame, the frame has changed. And new networks have been created where all these negative emotions and feelings, thoughts, have now been associated with virtuous neuronal networks. Mm -hmm. You know, to, to, to use, you know, very much the, 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 the language of Buddhism, that the, 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 the positive thoughts are virtues. Right. And now you're showing how you're letting a person discover the virtues in their negative thoughts and feelings and feelings. Yeah, and so and what's good about her anger, by the way, she's in a rage when she at the beginning of the session. What's well, it shows her power. P power. That's a good thing. What What are other good things about her rage? Well, I think it's also keeping her protected. Yeah, and, and what else is her. good about her rage? It keeps people away from her who might be dangerous. Well, that's a huge thing. But uh, the most obvious thing, it seems to me, it shows she's got a moral compass and she has every right to be enraged. Her husband was a sadistic jerkoid. Uh -huh. <laughs> right, right. But he, he was horrible. Yeah. And it would be totally appropriate. We, we don't want her to press the magic button and all her anger disappears. Right. Then she say, oh, he beat me for 30 years and I'm as happy as can be. I love the guy. That yeah. wouldn't make sense. Right. We don't want that. And that's really critical. That you're, you're, it's not saying, oh, just do away with these emotions and enter into a state of non-reflective bliss. Yeah. It's saying, no, let's look at the appropriateness of certain interpretations and emotions. And what are you doing? At every step, you're asking, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Now, remember, when you've done the daily mood log earlier, at every negative thought, you've given the patient has given it a truth value. Hundred percent, ninety percent. How strongly do I believe that? Okay, so what's the next step? And even when we do the positive we frame, we say, "Is this important to you? And how much do you believe what you're saying about these things now, about the positive comments?" Now we're getting into the home stretch here. Okay. Right, the moment, the moment when what looks like magic, but is normal brain function. Is also and, and by the way, this can be occurring at any time up to now. But now we're going to do two things to set that up in a, in a virtually fail-safe manner. Let's go back and take the negative thoughts and look at the cognitive distortions. So the like person must be defective, right? And yeah. overgeneralization and self-blame and. Most reasoning, right. all of them. All or nothing thinking, mental filter, discounting the positive, like mind, mind reading. reading. That's why he beat me because he Fortune saw I telling. was uh, defective. Right. And a should statement: I shouldn't be defective. Right. I, I should be, be better than that. There's at least eight enormous distortions in that thought. Right. And look what you've done: you've undermined the truth values. So now the brain is the brain's job is to look at different interpretations and choose the one that's more accurate. Mm. Once you do that, the brain's job is to have an appropriate emotional reaction. What did you say? It undermined the... You undermine what we, in philosophy, you would call the truth values. How, how accurate is a statement? The person earlier thought that, this woman earlier thought it was 100% true that she was defective. But now she sees it's not true at all. If there's eight distortions. How can it be? Right. That's exactly right. Right. So that breaks the, the neural it, 
circuitry. It, well, it, it enables the brain to do what the brain is supposed to do, which is to look at in different interpretations and choose the one that is more accurate and then generate effective emotions. But there's even more to it than that. One of the, the, the great utilities in the way the daily mood log is used is that this is an exercise that is done with writing. Now, if you simply talk, you don't get the benefits of the motor movements, of the motor networks, of information coming in through the visual system. 65% of the information in humans is, comes in through the visual system, is the estimate. So if you just talk, you don't get that. You're reinforcing things. When you're writing, you're choosing words. You're using abbreviations, so you're thinking about what abbreviations to use. AON so, for all or nothing thinking. You write it on the daily mood log. OG for overgeneralization. Yeah, that's really important. It's not just the therapist who's doing the writing, the patient's writing. And patient yeah. has to do the writing. Yeah. Because that is how you're doing microneurosurgery on yourself. It's like learning a new song on a musical instrument. That's you're doing when you do that, you're doing another type of microneurosurgery, but you were reaching into your own brain and modifying your own networks of nerve cells by doing this in the writing as a way to make that work even better. So the, the use of writing within Team CBT is another critical component of this that seems to be lacking in many approaches to psychotherapy, just, just like testing is lacking. So now you do something else. You have a next step, which is the method step. And you use all these extraordinary methods that reinforce the comparisons between two interpretations and externalization of voices, right? It did, oh, you know, Rhonda, um, I, I, you know, I'm so nervous about this, this podcast that I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm going to forget what I need to say. And if I'm being the negative me and you could be the positive me and have a response to that. So that would be my negative thought. I'm so nervous to do the, and it, you're, you're hitting. I'll forget and everything. I'll forget. And I'm, and I'm the positive fighting back. And you're the that. positive fighting back. Uh -huh. Well, I, I could say, well, you know what? You're right. You're right. You're the positive. You're the negative Rhonda. Mm -hmm. I'm the positive. You know, you're right, Rhonda. I, I will forget. And, and I have forgotten, and, um, but I expect that the listeners will be very forgiven, and, and maybe once I, I um, keep going, I'll feel more comfortable, and then I'll remember. And there are lots of times when I do remember, and I won't forget, so I have to remember both. I, will re I, I know what I'm talking about, and if I forget, so what? And, and a lot of them have such low standards, they seem to like me even more. I know. <laughs> I mean, and, 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 right? And then, right, exactly. And then you ask, who, who, who won? Did you win small? Did you win big? Did you win huge? What are you doing? You're comparing the accuracy of each interpretation. And the magic is just letting the brain do what it has evolved to do. The magic is the same magic. You know, if you get a cut and it heals, you don't say, oh my God, that's supernatural. It must be the cut healed. That must be fraud. That must be a charlatan in my skin that's doing that. No. That is the biology that has evolved. This is the biology of the brain. And the beauty of team, and this is why I say that if, if you wanted to design a therapy from scratch of what we know about the nervous system, you'd end up with something like Team CBT because you have methodically gone through 
removing obstacles, setting up the comparison between less accurate and more accurate interpretations, decreased stress so that the person is able to respond, activated the networks that need to be modified and have gone through modifying them. And now the brain does what it's supposed to do. And why does rapid change occur? Because that is how emotions work. It's not that Team CBT is supernaturally magic. It's that it is great medicine. And that is why I've come to be so interested in it, because it is telling us something of tremendous importance in terms of, you know, you start thinking about this in terms of other forms of psychotherapy. How would you modify them? How would you make them better? You start thinking about this, this, this terrible problem that we have in our schools where we take kids who are having emotional problems and we drug them with things that affect chemicals in the brain that are critical to normal brain development. This is so wrong and so foolish. And you have these kids. So a kid comes in and is, has, shows no discipline and is acting out. And what do we do? We give many places, they give the kid an antipsychotic to calm them down. Instead of paying attention. Or a stimulant, or, a, like a street drug, like a dexedrine, right. which is fancily called Adderall, but it's a street, street drug, right. like speed. Right, for ADHD. What we don't do is we say, wait a minute, the kid is acting out. When do you act out? You act out when you don't have the words. You act out when you're having trouble expressing yourself, right? This is how we place your rate. So we act it out, right? So how much more powerful is it to say, what's the matter? Right? Let, let's talk about this. Gosh, maybe we can use the tools of Team CBT to teach kids how to recognize their cognitive distortions, to recognize their positive emotions. And instead of giving them these extraordinarily powerful drugs with all their side effects and their very poor evidence of efficacy in adults, let alone the fact that they're rarely properly tested in children, even though we use them, we use a technique that is well-based in understanding the function of the nervous system. So that's, that, that's good. And, and we're, we're, we've got to quit. We're, we're leaving our lady up in the lurch. That, that's great. And there is research on hyperactivity in kids and cognitive therapy, which mm -hmm. can, can be helpful and effective. But remember our lady now who's saying, I must be defective. And we found eight distortions mm -hmm. in, in her negative thoughts. And the listeners don't want to leave without what happened to that woman with 30 years of, of, of beatings and, 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 and rape. And, and, and what one, happened? Well, it was really easy when, when, I, when she was identifying the distortions because we'd shown all the beautiful things about her symptoms and that she didn't have to press a magic button, get rid of them because she was defective. These symptoms were, were healthy, were a form of self-love, her anxiety, it was this all appropriate. Then when, when, when I said, where are the distortions? And like, I must be defective. And, and, and she said, well, all or nothing thinking, I guess. And, and I said, well, tell me why. Uh, and, and she said, well, you know, I got my PhD and I developed this huge practice. How, how effective can, can I be? And, and then also I raised two beautiful sons and she had talked about how she had to, to muffle her screams when she was being beaten because she was afraid her, her boys would hear. 
and how she wanted to leave the marriage, but her husband had said, who was a wealthy, horrible, mean-spirited man, he said, if you ever try to leave me, I'm going to kidnap your the boys and, and take them to South America, and you'll never see me again. And she believed that was true. And then, okay, I must be defective. Uh, okay, so you've achieved a, a great deal. You all, she said, this is mind reading too. I must be defective. And I said, why is it mind reading? She said, well, I'm assuming my husband beat me because he saw that I was defective. I've believed that for 42 years. And I said, well, so when you say it's mind reading, what do you mean? He says, well, maybe he beat me because I was, uh, he was sadistic and controlling. And she said, wow, that's a relief. And then I said, what's the difference between saying, I must be defective and say I'm a human being with defects and strengths. She says, oh, that, that is so different. And all of that process took, mm -hmm. I would say, 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I said, how are you feeling down? And now she said, my depression just went from 100 to 5. And I said, do you want it to go a little further? She said, I think so, but I don't know if I dare. And then we went a bit further and it went all the way to, to zero. But the fact, it's like mm -hmm. what you're saying, her, her brain, once she saw that this wasn't true and gave herself permission to not to be hating herself and mm -hmm. beating, beating up on herself, the change happened. It was just quick and natural. I didn't even have to do much of anything. So, it just so, happened automatically. So, so let me ask you a question that, that many of my colleagues yeah. ask, ask me, because the, the way that, that I work through trying to understand um, something is, is I have some really brilliant, remarkable yeah. colleagues yeah. that I can talk about my, yeah. my thoughts with. And they'll challenge me. Yeah. And, and one of the challenges is that, that comes up time and again is, well, sure, but you know, people who go to revival tent meetings yeah, right. feel better. Yeah. So yeah. How, how durable is this? Yeah. Well, I think that there's probably something valuable in faith healing. And when I was on the Navajo reserva reservation in medical school, we saw the Nav Navajo uh, he healers doing some beautiful work. But the thing is, if you don't have the tools, it, it, it isn't going to last. So I you know, what we're teaching the patient is here's tools you, you can use. And so I contacted her six months later, sent her the brief mood survey. Her scores were exactly the same zeros. And she sent me a note, tell your colleagues, I'm like a laser beam attorney. And when those negative thoughts come, I just blow them out of the water. And she says, I'm just in a state of euphoria. And then I, that was two and a half years ago. And then I contacted her two days ago because I had to see if I get permission to include her story as a chapter in the new book, Feeling Great, that Mark is going to be in. And she, it was just a joy. She's still, she's still on, still on a high. But if you don't do the relapse prevention training and you, do, and the, and, the, and you don't tell the patient right. you're going to have to use these tools now whenever you fall in, into a black hole, here's a little ladder you can climb back out. And that, that's the key. Right. Keep reinforcing the networks. Yeah. Keep doing fire together, wire together, yeah. so that we so that yeah, wire homework, together and fire the together. Homework. You're going to have to practice to get those neurons we've created, those new networks, to strengthen them. So we want to thank you tremendously, Mark, not only for today's podcast, but just on a personal level, just for being 
such a good friend and the hikes and hanging out. Uh, so many trips you've made out here, all of the wild dim sums we've had following the hikes and, and the fun and, and for your brilliant uh, work. And, and I think you, you folks, uh, when the new book Feeling Great comes out, you're going to love uh, this chapter by Mark Noble. And then uh, you're working on your own book, so there's going to be a whole mm-hmm. separate book uh, coming up. On, on brain function and psychotherapy as well. And, and I just want to re- reciprocate the thanks that you have been so warm and welcoming for, you know, my world is how cells and proteins work, but I'm a scientist. I thrive on curiosity and difficult problems. And in so many disciplines, the response would have been, and so many practitioners, the response would have been, yeah, well, go study psychology for 10 or 15 years, and then I'll have a conversation with you because you don't know anything. But, David, you, you, you welcomed me, and you recognized, as you put it, that I'm an empty vessel with no preconceptions. And that's been the cool thing about <laughs> working with you. have had no training whatsoever, and so you've learned you're like a genius. <laughs> well, either that or hallucinating. But I think that these ideas... Every scientific journey starts with a step. This is a new journey. What is the neuroscience of Team CBT? Are we saying things that are going to be wrong? Almost certainly. That's the nature of science. It's the nature of of discovering new things. There are many areas to amplify on, many areas that that we can see to, to modify, but you have to have a start. And making that start, I think, can do so much good because if, I mean, my, my thought about all this is very much that in understanding Team CBT at this level, that process will get, hopefully get more people interested in it, will may ex- affect the velocity with which it's accepted because now people who would say, ah, it can't be true. Well, look, here's the science of it, and here's the science of it at the level of brain function that we use to describe any other aspect of neurotherapeutics. And if you want to reduce it to the level of molecules, I'm happy to have that kind of discussion. But, and in and specific brain regions, I'm happy to have that kind of discussion. I'll put all that in, in the, the full book. But we hope that as we've been so interested in this, that the listeners will find this interesting, will find it helpful, and maybe some of you listeners will find us something that you want to work on. And that would be truly great. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rondo. Thank you, David. And thank you so much, Mark. It was fascinating. And thank you, Dave, for you were kind of quiet today, but kept us electronically on track and appreciate that. Yeah, we really appreciate you, Dave. Sure. Well, and thank you all so much. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com, where you will find the show notes for this episode under the podcast page. You will also find archives of previous episodes and many resources for therapists and non-therapists. We welcome your comments and questions. If you want to support the show, please share the podcast with people who might benefit from it. You could also go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. The theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donsel. I am your host, Rhonda Borowski. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 
I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.